Father, as we come before you this morning, we pray that the word would have power. God, that shackles would be broken, that we would be able to hear what you have to say and that we would be willing to respond. Thank you for your faithfulness. Amen. Just on a bit of a lighthearted note this morning, I do have my phone up here. Um, We are expecting a beautiful addition to our little family, and Mel is in hospital at the moment, so if I get a phone call and I disappear here really quickly, you will know exactly why. Um, But praise God, he's good, he's good, he's good. I am so excited about what God is going to do today, and I just... (sighs) I'm just so pumped. I'm so, so pumped about it. And Mark, brother, I just, I don't know where you are. It's a bit dark to see at the moment, but I want to commend you for this morning. I want to commend you for sharing your testimony. And you know, something that you said actually resonates with me. When we step out, when God speaks to us and we step out and do what he has told us to do, miraculous follows. And that's what you did. You heard the voice of the Lord, you stepped out, and you did what God asked you to do, and the result is healing, and the result is restoration, and the result is chains broken. So thank you for that this morning, and let that build faith in us this morning, hope point, as we gather together and realize that God is good, and He will do what He said He will do in our lives. You know, I love this little clip. It might have been a bit cartoony or maybe the meaning is lost on some of us. But what it explains is that God's goodness elicits a response in our lives. It's upon the revelation and the reflection of who God is that we are drawn to worship. It is a response. And that response can look in various different ways. And the revelation we receive from God about His goodness can look very differently depending on who we are. But the important thing is that when we are called to respond, we respond appropriately. We'll talk a little bit more about what that looks like as we go. If you've got your Bible with you this morning, can you please turn with me to the passage of Matthew 22, verse 35 to 37. There we go. So to give you a little bit of a context about the scripture, we've heard about this passage even in our series, but Jesus is here, he's teaching, he's speaking to a group of people, and he's just spoken to the Sadducees, but of course we've got the Pharisees hanging around, hatching a bit of a plan because they want to try and catch Jesus out. And so we pick up here in 35, where one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, teacher. Which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. All our heart, all our soul, and all our mind. That's all it takes. That's all it takes for us to worship God extravagantly is to give Him everything. It's all it takes. And so we have an opportunity today as a body, as a family, as we come together in corporate worship to just glorify Him. 
to give him what he actually deserves. I want to start by taking a moment to recognize the journey that it has taken us to get here this morning. And look, if you are uh, a parent, trying to get the kids ready this morning might have been crazy for you. I get that. Maybe you had a flat tire on the way. Maybe you had work stresses that have been bothering you all week. But you're here today. And I believe that we have a personal invitation to leave that stuff at the door and to step into a promise that God has for us to experience Him, to experience His fullness, to experience His mercy and joy. Today is a significant day. And we are doing things a bit differently, as you may have noticed. But we have a personal invitation to give everything we have to him, to worship him with everything we have in response to his goodness. I'm privileged to conclude this series on worship, and it's been a wonderful series. Who agrees? Hopefully there's been some real goal that you can take away And to do a quick sum up of some of the awesome things that we've learned so far, Pastor Ben started off by talking to us about sacrificial worship and the benefit and what it means to worship God sacrificially. And he used the story of this woman who wept at Jesus' feet, and we'll touch on her later today because I think it's worth revisiting. And then Carol so beautifully spoke to us about the fact that we can worship anywhere and that there's another level of worship that we can dive into. And I believe that to be true, so I'm going to touch on that today as well. And then Pastor Ben spoke about worship last week as a weapon and a tool for us in our Christian walk and this spiritual battle. And guess what? I'll touch on that too. So basically, I'll just vlog everyone else's sermons and try and put it on. But the challenge this morning is for us to become worshippers who can worship extravagantly. And that looks differently depending on who we are and our revelation of who God is and who we are. The challenge is to be extravagant. You know, worship is one of the topics I absolutely love because I think that it's something that so many people can relate to. It's something that's so ingrained in the very fabric of what it means to be human. And in fact, oftentimes we worship and we don't even realize that we are doing it. And you know, it starts at a very young age. And I was thinking about my son and he's got this little plush toy, this uh, uh, teddy. He calls it Ellie. And, and we take Ellie everywhere. And, and, and when Matthias can't go to sleep at night, we give him Ellie and Ellie comforts him. And, and when Ellie's not around, he's asking about Ellie. Where is Ellie? Where is Ellie? Because Ellie has caught his mind's attention and his heart's affection. And so it starts at a very young age, but it can go through to the later points in our life as well. And I recently sat down with a young man at school. He was about 15 years old and he was talking to me about his reverent love for this brand new, uh, what's well, not brand new, it's new for him, uh, this XR6 Ford Ute. Now, I'm not a buff when it comes to uh, cars and stuff, so uh, apologies if I stuff any of this up. But um, as we were talking about it, you could just tell that there was such a passion in this young man about this vehicle that he had purchased. And he could talk to me about how he'd spend time and money buffing the rims, and he can even tell me exactly what injectors he's got in there. And he could tell me about, with a little bit of tinkering, how much power he can get out of that four-liter turbo engine of his. And he could tell that he was just so in love with this vehicle. And he took such pride and care about being able to tell me all the different specifications and modifications about this vehicle. 
as this young man demonstrated so elegantly, worship occurs when we turn our mind's attention and our heart's affection towards something or someone. And I'm going to say it again because I think it's important for us to understand this morning that worship occurs when we give our mind's attention and our heart's affection over to something or someone. Have you ever caught yourself lying awake at night thinking about something or someone? The book of Psalms has a passage of Scripture in in Psalms 63 verse 6, and I don't want to get this wrong, but David says, he lies awake at night. He lies awake all night meditating on thoughts of God. It's a challenging question, Hope Point, but what keeps us awake at night? What is keeping you, what is keeping me from falling asleep? What are the obsessions, the addictions, the idols that consume our thoughts? Worship comes so naturally to us, sometimes it happens without us even realizing that it's occurring. Just think about uh, if you're married or if you're in a romantic relationship, the first time you gaze lovingly into the eyes of your partner. What happened? You might have experienced this tingle running down your spine, and I don't know the scientific term for this, but this happens in young men, and it switches off the frontal cortex of the brain, and we can't make proper decisions, and we do dumb stuff to try and impress the girl. Maybe some of you can relate, maybe not. In any case, it makes me think of our first kiss. The first kiss I had was with my wife, Melinda. And um, what I want you to picture is, I don't know if you've seen the notebook scene of the, 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 the famous kiss, but they're sitting in the boat and, and the guy's looking at the girl and it's like, it's, it's raining and, and they start moving their heads closer towards each other and their lips start moving towards each other and then there's the magical moment and, and, and the music and, and, and they do the kiss. Now my kiss with Mel was something like that, right? I want you, I want you to picture that, but one, one key difference... Uh, it wasn't raining. We were out in a beautiful starlight, so it was beautiful. But at the moment where we're meant to have our lips touch, and I, look, I don't even know how this happens, but we managed to bang our teeth against one another. And um, it was a, a rather painful experience. And um, something that, uh, even though it wasn't magical, it was very memorable. Um, probably won't forget it anytime soon. But, but here's my point, right? Because of our propensity to worship. We make idols of the things and the people around us. The simple truth of the matter is that we are worshippers by design. And and here's the thing, because God has created us to be worshippers, just maybe as the church, as the body of Christ, maybe we should be the example of what worship should look like. That's a challenging thought. We should be people known for radical and extravagant worship. And you know, something that fascinates and frustrates me probably in equal measure is the fact that on a Wednesday afternoon, some random time in the year, we can go to a state of origin gathering and we can scream our hearts out and put on the fan gear and go Queensland. Any New South Wales people out there? 
suck them. That's all I can say. Um, right, but we can scream till our voices are hoarse. We can watch the Broncos play the Cowboys and we can be cheering like crazy. But come Sunday morning and it becomes too much of a bother to raise our hands. It becomes too difficult for us to raise our voices. And I know this to be true because it's a contradiction that I struggle with in my own life. We carry the hope of the world. Christ lives in us. If the joy of the Lord is my strength, if there's fullness of joy in his presence, then why is it that worship is sometimes such a chore? In 2 Samuel chapter 6, when David danced before the Lord in front of a crowd of people, was there anything timid about the way that he did that? In Kings chapter 1, or 1 Kings chapter 18, when Elijah was standing before the prophets of Baal and he was pouring water on that altar, was there anything timid about the way he was doing that? And I believe that was an act of worship because God was glorified through it. There was no fear there. In Luke chapter 7, when the sinful woman came to the feet of Jesus and she just poured her heart, her whole life, her future into him, when she wept and washed his feet and dried his feet with her hair, was there anything reserved about that act of extravagant worship? In Acts chapter 2, when Peter, the apostle, and the people of God have the Holy Spirit come down on the day of Pentecost. Was he ashamed when addressing everyone? Everyone was saying, what are you guys doing? You're drunk. Yet he spoke boldly. And last week we heard Pastor Ben encourage us with um, Acts 16, where Peter and Sil- oh, sorry, Paul and Silas are sitting in jail. They're literally chained and confined Yet they did not cower to their circumstance. They worshipped shamelessly. This leads us back to the scripture for today. Matthew 22, verse 37. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. I believe that this passage gives us a very clear indication of what it's going to take from us to become people who worship extravagantly. But it might also just allow the Holy Spirit to put his finger on and point out things in our life where the enemy has robbed us of experiencing the power and the blessing of worship that is free of self-consciousness. And so the question is, where is our heart's affection? Love the Lord your God with all your and soul. I shared the definition earlier with you, but I love this definition that relates and speaks to our heart because it speaks to the emotions and the feelings that we have. And Pastor John John Piper, he also runs Desiring God website. Highly recommend you check it out. I really enjoy his stuff, but he makes a statement about worship, and let's have a look at that now. 
The encouragement, uh, the engagement of the heart in worship is the coming alive of feelings and emotions and affections of the heart. And here's the kicker. Where feelings for God are dead, worship is dead. I believe that God's goodness elicits a response of worship in us. This is why awareness of God and having a posture of thankfulness gives us an opportunity to step into worship because it allows us to turn our affection from ourselves and onto Him. And we looked at the passage last week from 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, verse 18. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. A divided heart cannot produce authentic worship. Have you ever tried to come to worship while you've been frustrated or angry or annoyed about something? What happened? I want to propose there's probably only one or two things, or at least I know in my life there's one of two things that happen. Either I continue to fester, I continue to focus, I continue to have my heart's affection on the way that I feel, which leads to me stopping that worship. Or, by the grace of God, my affection is turned towards him, away from my circumstances and the emotions that I'm feeling, and I'm inspired to worship him in spite of. And it vanishes, disappears. In that moment, we can get caught up in heavenly places with him. In my opinion, there's no other option. It's either we keep our affection and our attention focused on ourselves or we turn it towards him on who he is and what he has done. Now, please don't get me wrong here because I know that it's possible for us to experience pain and even in that experience to be worshipping God in a response. In fact, I would argue that whole point, if we're going to be people who live in that place of extravagant worship, we are going to have to get used to, to worshipping God out of a place of pain and suffering. Because that's part of life. It's unescapable. And I love a passage in the book of Psalms. I probably won't turn to it for time's sake. But Psalm 23 verse 4. And here the psalmist is just pouring out his heart. And, and, and it's clear that he's in a bit of a tough spot here, right? Because in the verse we read, Even though I walk through the shadow of the valley of death, I will fear no evil for your rod and your staff. They comfort me. And we have heard this passage of Scripture so many times before, but I believe this morning, maybe the Holy Spirit can reveal an aspect of truth that you may not have considered before. See, the psalmist in this point is at the shadow of the valley of death. And it's at this point, it's at the point of losing a loved one. It's at the point of losing your health. It's at the point where you're at the cold face of death on the verge of moving into the other side where God reveals something to us. It's in this place of desperation where the psalmist turns his affection away from himself and onto God. To God's promises for your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And on to him. I recently listened to a sermon by Bill Johnson. You might have heard it. He spoke about it recently after the death of his wife. 
And as he was speaking, even in the midst of this deep suffering and pain, he just oozed worship. He oozed worship because it was clear that his affection was not on himself, but his affection was on the Father. But one of the things that he said that tremendously impacted me amongst many different things in the sermon was the fact that now this life is the only opportunity where we will be able to give God worship in the midst of our pain. See, the truth of the matter is that we will worship God for all eternity if we're Christian. If we go to heaven, we will be in his presence, in his glory, giving him the glory that he deserves. But it will not be from a place of pain. And so he speaks about this pain as being a privilege in a sense that he can provide a praise sacrifice, a sacrificial worship to God, even in the midst of this difficult situation that he finds himself in. I point now, this is the only time in the scope of eternity, that we will be able to give God a sacrifice in the midst of pain, worship in the midst of pain. This man understood this. This man got that he needed to give his affection over to God because he is worthy of it. And let me tell you, that is so, so precious to God. May God give us the grace and humility to worship him even as we choke down the tears. I've seen this in the life of my wife, recently when she lost her mother, and I can tell you that there's nothing more beautiful than someone who is willing to sacrifice and give a sacrifice of worship to God even when it costs them so, so dearly. And let me tell you this morning, that is so precious to the heart of God. A sacrifice of worship made out of a place of pain. Because it's costly. It's costly. And there's another example of this extravagant type of worship in the book of 2 Samuel. Turn with me. Once again, we're looking here at the life of David. A flawed man, but a man after God's own heart. 2 Samuel 12, verse 16. And of course, this is a very difficult situation. In fact, an almost unimaginable situation unless you've been there yourself. But David pleaded with God for for the child. He fasted and went into his house and spent the nights lying on the floor. The elders of the household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's servants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they thought, while the child was still living, we spoke to David, but he would not listen to us. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do something desperate. I know that there are people 
in this room who are going through desperate times. And there's probably nothing more desperate than in the life of a parent watching your little one be sick or, heaven forbid, a little one passing. And I believe that God's heart bleeds for us if we have to go through this. But I want us to turn our focus, I want us to turn our attention here to David's response, even in this most desperate of situations. Davis noticed that his servants were whispering among themselves and he realised the child was dead. Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David did something extraordinary. Then David got up from the ground. After he washed and put on lotions and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and he worshipped. Then he went to his house and he ate and requested his service to bring him food and he ate. At face value, this seems like an absurd, absolutely crazy passage. Here at the moment where the child is actually still alive, David is distraught, he's in sack clothing, he's in mourning, he's asking God, God, do something, he's fasting. But the moment the child dies, he steps out, gets changed, washes, put on lotion, and then worships God. Now, I don't believe for a second that David had an instant change of heart, and all of a sudden, those emotions that he was dealing with, the deep longing uh, that he had for his child to live, just disappeared in thin air. But what I do believe is that David was in the habit of turning his affections and his attentions to, to him who deserves it. And even in this here, this situation, which is desperate and dire, he is able to give God a sacrifice of worship, extravagant worship, in the midst of tremendous pain. Extravagant worship is worship that carries with it the fragrance of sacrifice. Love the Lord your God with all your mind. Where's our mind's attention? What are the things that we're spending our thought life on? And I want you to listen to the, the lyrics here of Gable and Price in his song Heretic. He went through um, school of ministry at Bethel and writes some really interesting songs, if I could put it that way. And follow along with me if you can. Tell me directly, am I just a modern Pharisee? Do my thoughts scream, a renewed mind, or just words I speak? And if you walked into my home and you make your glory known, would my tears soak your feet, or would I crucify you? Offend my mind so I can know you more. And break my heart so it looks more like yours. Offend my mind so I can know you more. Often it's our mind's attention that inhibits us from walking in authentic worship. 
somehow this infatuation within our Western culture, within Western society to explain everything has robbed us of the opportunity to see the glory of God's mystery. And you know, there's nothing new under the sun. There were these guys, they were called the Pharisees, who lived at the same time as Jesus, who walked the same roads that Jesus walked on. They knew the miracles. They saw the miracles. They knew the scripture inside out. But yet somehow, even in the midst of that, they managed to miss Emmanuel, God in flesh, in arm reach. Yet they missed him. How is that possible? They were waiting for the Messiah to come, and when he was there, they completely missed him. Could it be that they had their mind's attention in the wrong place? Could it be that they were so focused on keeping up appearances? Could it be that they were so focused on uh, suppressing heresy or remembering Scripture so that they could recite it in public? but they miss the mystery of God walking amongst them. C.S. Lewis in his book, Reflections on the Psalms, writes some really interesting comments about this whole concept of God actually demanding or, or requiring worship from us. And I think it's interesting because it reflects maybe some of the ideals of our Australian culture and society. See, oftentimes we've got this tall poppy syndrome. If someone is telling us that how good they are, if they're asking us to give them worship, if they're asking us to praise them for what they've done, usually we try and cut them down. Usually we try and humble them. And so here's a quote. I think it's on the screen there. This is what he wrote in the book. We all despise the man who demands continued assurance of his virtue, intelligence or diligence. We despise still even more the people around every dictator, millionaire, celebrity who gratifies that demand. Thus the picture at once ludicrous and horrible, both of God and his worship is threatened to appear in my mind. This is a very narrow and false perspective on Christian worship. A bunch of loonies who are overreacting, who are waving their hands, singing and dancing, speaking in weird languages, in worship to some egocentric deity. Even in our Christian community, and this is probably where it becomes even more challenging for me, we might have seen someone do something crazy in worship. Maybe it's that they've lifted their hands, they've knelt on the ground, they've laid down, heaven forbid, they've sung really loudly, out of tune. And we think, surely that can't be gratifying to God. How does them doing that thing glorify God? But see, C.S. Lewis came to the revelation, and we saw it in the clip earlier, that in fact, appropriate worship is appropriate when it is a response to something or someone worthy of it. And so the question for us is, what is an appropriate response to what God has done? To who God is? And well, to be honest, that depends on our revelation. It's a revelation about who we are. 
and a revelation who God is. And there's a woman in the Bible who gets this right, and we've heard about it numerous times, but it's in the lady in Luke chapter 7. She understood who she was. She was broken, sinful, in need of a saviour, but she understood who Jesus was. Her only hope. Her only choice. And so in that context, it made perfect sense. And here in Luke 7, 42, it comes as no surprise when Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. Her great love that she showed to Jesus was a response to his forgiveness for her. Listen to this. But whoever has been forgiven little, Loves little. And there's a whole sermon in that little passage of Scripture right there. Whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. I want to propose, Hope Point, that none of us have been forgiven little. And maybe this is a point of perspective. This is a point of seeing us as we truly are and seeing God as He truly is. And so often we get that perspective or image wrong and it impacts the way in which we worship. But I'll leave that there. Maybe Pastor Ben can unpack that another time. C.S. Lewis began to understand that it's in this very process where we worship God that he communicates his presence with us. The very command to worship is not just so that God can receive something that he rightfully deserves, but it is so that he can give of himself to us. And in Hebrews 4, chapter 16, we encourage, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in time of need. As we draw near to him, God draws near to us. And the question remains, where is our mind's attention? And I'm drawing to a close in a moment, but there's a couple of key thoughts that I want to expand upon before I finish. Where is our mind's attention? If we are focused on our circumstances, on the situations that are going on around us, and we can never, then I can never step into the promises that God has for me because my attention is focused in the wrong place. If my focus and attention is on self-preservation, if it's on the opinions of other people, it will limit me to be able to walk in God's promises. And there's examples of that. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 11, Moses goes to God. In fact, he's watching the burning bush as God's speaking to him. And yet he says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Well, Gideon, the agent of the Lord, appears to Gideon. He's in the wine press in chapter 6, verse 15. And he says, pardon me, my Lord, but I am, how can I save Israel? I'm of the weakest clan, and I'm the least in my family. Clearly, these men's attention were not focused on what God was saying, on the promises of God, but it was focused on their own iniquities and shortcomings, and sometimes we find ourselves in that place when we come to worship. It's the wrong perspective. Attention is in the wrong place. A sobering thought for us to maybe think about is, what would have happened if these men never changed their attention off of themselves and focused onto God? Who would have delivered Israel? 
I can't answer that question, but what I can do you, tell you is that when they did, when they turned their affection towards the Father where it belongs, then God did something miraculous in their midst. Has there been times where fear, fear of what people will think of us, fear of what people will say, has stopped us from pushing in and giving our full attention and full affection to the Father? I know that this is something that I struggle with myself. But you know what? I want to be like Mark. I want to be like someone who steps out. And if God says jump, I want to say, Father, how far? If God says run, I want to ask him which direction. I want to be someone that is so closely tied into the heart of God that when he asks me to do something, even if it appears irrational, even if it affects my understanding and I don't know what it is that you're trying to do here, God, I want to go. Because his plan and purposes are perfect and we don't see the whole picture. Sometimes we just don't understand, and that's okay. What does it mean to worship God extravagantly? It means to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and all our mind. It means to surrender our affection and our mind's attention to Him who truly deserves it. And I might ask the band to come up. Now we get to the good bit. We have an opportunity this morning, a unique opportunity, to put into practice what we've just learned. To put into practice maybe the thing that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you about. And we want to provide a space and make an opportunity where people can feel like they can do that, that they can hear the voice of the Holy Spirit and respond. And so there's a couple of ways that we're going to do that. Underneath your chair, there's a booklet and a pen. Now that's not just there so you could take notes on my sermon, but it's actually there. So that as Holy Spirit downloads something into your heart this morning, that you can start writing. And maybe it is that you want to draw a picture. Maybe it is that God is going to give you a prophecy this morning that is going to set someone free in your family. Maybe it is this morning that God wants you to write a song. A song that is going to change the nation of Australia. If that's the case, whatever it may be, whatever God puts in your heart, I want you to feel free to use that as a tool, if you like. But there's also going to be an opportunity for you to step outside, into the aisles, if you like, or up the front here. If you want to kneel, kneel. If you want to stand, stand. If you want to sit, sit. But hear the voice of God. Turn your heart's affection towards Him and your mind's attention towards Him this morning as we worship. And I'll finish with this. Whenever I find worship difficult in my life, I find returning to the cross is the best way for me to turn my affection and attention towards Him. When I understand who He is and what He's done for me, when I look at that cross and I see that my sin held Him there as Roman nails pierced His hands and feet, I automatically respond in worship. It's like breathing. When we understand what God has done and who He is, worship is the result. So for the next half an hour or so, we're just going to give Him that.